Now we come to the little book of Ruth. And this book has been of special blessing to me. The first book that I wrote was on the tabernacle. The second book that I wrote was Ruth, The Romance of Redemption. Now, this little book comes out of the period of the Judges. We are going to see that a little bit later on. But it comes out of that very dark period of the Judges that we have just been looking at. And this actually is a brochure of beauty, and it's put on that very black background. We'll see that in a moment. But this little book has been recognized as a literary gem in most unexpected quarters. It's reported, by the way, that Dr. Samuel Johnson, the literary giant of the 18th century in England, made a copy of the book of Ruth. He copied it out in longhand, and he read it before a London club as a production that he had recently read. And the club, thinking that it was a modern composition, they were loud and unanimous in their praise of the manuscript. I think they probably thought Dr. Johnson wrote it. Then Dr. Johnson informed them that it was taken from a book which they all rejected, the Bible. Now, I do not know what the after effect was upon the group. I'm of the opinion that it could have caused some to turn to the Bible and find out maybe they had been missing something. But the beauty and excellence of this story cannot escape even the most casual reader. This little brochure of beauty records the love story of the maid from Moab. It reveals the power of passionate and pure love. It tells, first of all, the strong attachment of Ruth to her mother-in-law, for love is strong as death. And it records a romance that triumphed over racial and religious barriers and of two hearts that were joined together with bands of love. The book of Ruth is a laboratory demonstration that the greatest of these is love, even when it's on the human plane as well as on the divine plane. But the word love is never used in connection with the romance. It's only recorded one time, and that's a statement made that Ruth loved her mother-in-law. And believe me, that's a remarkable statement, by the way, whether it's in the book of Ruth or the Bible or wherever you find it, when she loved her mother-in-law. That makes it quite unusual. But as far as the romance is concerned, the word love does not occur. And yet, you can't escape the fact that here was a great romance. And it illustrates to us, God gives us these illustrations on the human plane to illustrate his great love for us today. Now, the way that I was drawn to the little book of Ruth was when I was a student in seminary. I was in a seminary where the faculty was divided in that day between what was called modernists and that was called fundamentalists. And it was pretty well divided. And you actually could hear one thing said in one class and contradicted in another class, for that matter. And I came to the conclusion, though I was 
what would have been called a fundamentalist, I came to the conclusion that the modernists was winning the day. They seemed to have the best philosophical arguments and all of that. And I wondered what the answer was to it. One night I was in the library reading a book that was required reading, because that's the only explanation of why I'd been reading it, and that was Calvin's Institutes. Now, friends, Calvin's Institutes, that is a book of which there is no witcher. I tell you, and Calvin wrote it when he was a very young man, his early 20s, we are told, and it is a marvelous book for that matter. But it was tedious and tiring, and I began to thumb through the book, and I came to where Calvin gave the types of the Redeemer. And I went through it. He gave Moses. I thought that was good. And he came on down, and he gave Samson. Then he came on down, and he gave Samuel. And I went back. He didn't give Boaz in this book at all. And then for the first time, I began to discover that actually, now what was taking place was that in the seminary, they were leaving out the love side of redemption. Now, salvation and redemption was presented as a cold business transaction. It was cash on the barrel head, and Christ paid with his blood, and that was it. May I say to you that you could hear the clink of silver, you could have the feel of the greenbacks, you could have a sight of the checks. It was cold as a cashier turning down a loan, and it was indifferent as a salesman of Tiffany's showing a diamond, and it was frigid as a frozen locker. That's the way redemption was presented. And that was only part of it. Why didn't they use Boaz here? Well, you have here the love side of redemption. And friends, salvation is a love affair. We love him because he first loved us. That is the wonderful thing about it. And you will find out that other writers in the past, they emphasized just this one thing, and that was the fact that it was a business transaction. But actually, it's a love affair. We love him because he first loved us. And Paul could say he loved me and he gave himself for me. And so we're going to see the love side of redemption. In the book of Exodus, we saw the emphasis upon the deliverance that God wrought. But here we begin to feel a pulsating heart of God as he brought these people out of captivity. That is something that actually has never been emphasized too much. You find way back in the Dark Ages, Anselm wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. And it emphasizes the fact that he came for purposes of redemption, but no emphasis is put upon love. Calvin didn't. Jonathan Edwards didn't, and Stuart Robinson, the great preacher of England, didn't. And actually, you find that many others have left that out. And it needs to be mentioned, friends, that salvation is a love affair and that he loves us. Now, the little book of Ruth, although it's small, it's very important. 
And I'll tell you why it's so important. It has a genealogy in here that connects David with the tribe of Judah, and without it, you could not connect David with Judah. And that's important, by the way. And the story that's recorded here made possible the birth of the Lord Jesus in Bethlehem. Without this book, he would never have been born there. And you have here the only biblical illustration of the Hebrew Goel, the kinsman redeemer that we saw back in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And then it throws light upon the Mosaic economy. And then, my friend, you see Christ in this book. And all of these make this little book very much worthwhile. Now, there are many ways of dividing the little book of Ruth. But we've divided it geographically. In chapter 1, it's in the land of Moab. Chapter 2, it's in the fields of Boaz. Chapter 3, on the threshing floor of Boaz. And chapter 4, in the heart and home of Boaz. Now, with that as our background, let's come to this first chapter now, and I shall begin reading at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, this first sentence is also a literary gem. I remember when I was a student in college, and I had to work to pay my way and also support my mother, and at that particular time, I had a job on the Memphis Commercial Appeal. And I went out one time with the police reporter and another one of the reporters, and we went down into a section of the town where there had been a murder. And we cub reporters were to write it up. And I never shall forget the city editor gave us quite a little talk when we got back. He says there are two things that you want to put in any story you write up, the time and the place. Those are important. And I've noticed that in the newspaper, and you watch this, you will always find they put the time and the place in any story that is there. And they'll get it generally in the first sentence. And sometimes the sentence is a paragraph long, but they always get those two things in. Now, it came to pass in the days when the judges rule. That is the time. Now, this little book is enacted on the background of the judges. And you remember that we saw last time when we concluded the book of Judges, it ended with, first of all, there was religious apostasy. Then there was moral awfulness. Then there was political anarchy. And the book of Judges closes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, I think obviously that Boaz knew one of the judges. And this little book is a little book that comes from a period where you have gross immorality as seen in the life of Samson and revealed in these last few chapters of Judges. But it's a bright story, a bright brochure on a very dark background. 
And that's the way God writes. I've noticed in these freeway signs, when we first came to Pasadena in 1940, the first freeway, I guess, in the country was this Pasadena freeway. And the signs then were white background, and the letters were black. I notice now that practically all those signs have disappeared. And you know, they've changed writing. They have a black background today, and the letters are in light. That's the way God writes. On the black background of sin, God writes the bright story of salvation. And on the black background of the days of the judges, sinful days, when every man did that which was right in his own eyes, and you have Romans 1, 2, and 3 set before us in those days. Here is a lovely story, a beautiful story, a sweet story. What a wonderful thing. And it reveals the fact that any young person who wants to live for God, you can live for God if you want to. Now, I want you to notice what he says here. It was in the time of the judges, and there was a famine in the land. Now, famines, this is one of 13 famines mentioned in the Old Testament, and they always come during a time of judgment. So these were not only dark days, but it was the darkest of the dark days. It was when that old hoop of history had gone down and the judgment of God was upon the land. Now we're told, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now he lived in Bethlehem, Judah. Now it's very important in many places in the Bible, I'm not sure of what all places in the Old Testament, to look up the meaning of names. Now Bethlehem means house of bread. Judah means praise. Now, here is a man and his family that lived in the house of bread and praise. That's a wonderful place to be, is it not? But he went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, why did they do that? Well, it was a famine, and he couldn't trust the Lord, so he went over to the land of Moab. Now, there's a very interesting thing said about Moab in Psalm 108, 9. God says, Moab is my wash pot. Let me change that a little. God says, Moab is my garbage can. Now, here is a man and his family that left the house of bread and praise and went over to eat out of a garbage can. Did you ever hear that story before? Well, I'm sure you have. It's the story our Lord told about the prodigal son. And he left the father's house, and he went over and finally was eating with the pigs. That's what happened to this family here. They are a prodigal family, not just a prodigal son. And there have been prodigal individuals, prodigal families, prodigal churches, prodigal nations. These are the ones that you have. And here you have a prodigal family. Now, I want to say this. They're going to get their whipping in the far country. I don't care who it is whether it's a prodigal son or prodigal daughter or a prodigal family, they get their whipping in the far country. When they come home, there's no whipping. When a child of God will come back to God, he'll always receive them. He won't whip them, but he sure sees they get disciplined in the far country. Now, here's the family, and I'd like for you to meet them today. The name of the man was Elimelech. Now, Elimelech means God is my king. And the name of his wife was Naomi. 
Now, Naomi means pleasant. And I've given her another name, if you don't mind. It's good. Her name is Mary Sunshine. And here is, God is my king and Mary Sunshine. And friends, you can't have a better couple than that. But notice the name of the two sons, Malon and Kilion. Now, Malon means unhealthy, and Kilion means puny. And that's a funny name for the boys, but that's their name. And that means the names were given to them because it applied to them. You see, in Bethlehem, they said, My, this woman, Naomi, Mary Sunshine, she lives on top of her circumstances. She has these two sickly boys, but you never could tell it talking with her. Some people are like that, you know, and this woman was like that. She had these two sickly boys. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab. That was bad enough, but they continued there. Now, somebody says, what would have happened to the prodigal son if he had died in the pig pen? Dr. Harry Rimmer years ago gave the answer. He says he would have been a dead son. He never would have been a dead pig. These were all God's children, but they're in a far country, and they are going to have to come home. Now, we'll notice this. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. God is my king. What a wonderful name. Every time you call a man, you give a testimony. God is my king. What a marvelous name. And he died, and she was left and her two sons. Now, I told you they'd get their whipping in the far country, and here it begins. Now, what happens? These two boys, they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwell there about ten years. Now, Arpur actually means fawn. That is a little deer. And she was a deer, but it was D-W-E-R and not D-E-A-R. It means she was an athletic type of girl. Apparently could run pretty fast. And the name of one was Arpa, and the name of the other, Ruth. Now, I wish I could give you a name for her. I know that the meaning that's ordinarily given is friendship or beauty. She was beautiful, but she had a wonderful character. There is a word I'd like to use for her, but Hollywood has spoiled it. And you know what it is? Glamour. She had glamour. This girl, Ruth, was a beautiful girl, as we're going to see. And she had personality. And she's not just beautiful and dumb. She's intelligent. And she has a marvelous character. And she came to a knowledge of God. Now, notice what happened. And Malon and Kilion died, also both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Told you they'd get their whipping in the far country. Now, Mary Sunshine lost her husband, and she's lost the two boys, puny and unhealthy. I didn't really think they were going to live through another hard winter, and they didn't. They died, both of them, and now you've got three widows. And she came out there with three men. Now she has two women, and they're foreigners. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, and I'm reading verse 6, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. God had blessed the land again. They had turned to God. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. Now, they start out to go to the land of Judah. And what happens? 
Well, Naomi now stops and talks to her two daughters-in-law like a Dutch uncle to a red-headed stepchild. And notice what she says. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. Now she talks to them, and she has something nice to say. Generally, a mother, you know, that has a son, she just doesn't think there's any girl good enough for her boy. And that's a strange thing. She may think her old man is not very good, and the boy may be just a carbon copy of his dad, but she doesn't think anybody is good enough for him. But Naomi thought that the daughters-in-law were all right for her sons, and she appreciated it. Now she tells them, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. Now go back to your own home. Go back to your own people and stay here. And actually, we're going to see it meant go back to idolatry. And these women apparently had made a stand for God. One's genuine, the other's not, as we'll see. Now, she says here, the Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Now, the rest she's talking about here is marriage, that you can marry among your own people. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And I want to tell you that they felt very badly, I'm sure, both of them. It involved, for instance, that they would not be able to marry again if they went with her, because none of her people would jeopardize themselves. They were forbidden to intermarry. And the second thing, it would mean perpetual poverty, because when she went to that land, she'd lost her property. It had been mortgaged, others had it, and it needed a redeemer. There will be one, but that wouldn't mean anything to Ruth at all. And therefore, these two women are told that they should stay and marry among their own people. But all of this, because the very womanly thing to do, they all stopped and took out their handkerchiefs and had a good cry. I call this the meeting of the handkerchief brigade. And there they were weeping. And then Naomi, she talks to them again, Mary Sunshine does, and they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. Both at first say they'd go. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? We are going to see later on, if a man dies, his brothers, our uncle, our nephew, would marry her. In fact, she could claim them. But Naomi said, I haven't any more sons, and you'd be foolish to go with me, and you couldn't marry outside of my family. That is for sure, because no one back in Bethlehem would be interested in you. And she said, Turn again, my daughters, go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Why, you'd be robbing the cradle. You wouldn't want that. Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now she blames the Lord for her trouble. We'll find out wasn't the Lord. They were out of the will of God when they went to the land of Moab. Now she tells them that it means perpetual widowhood, perpetual poverty. 
That's what it would cost these girls to go. Now, what happens? And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And what happened? Well, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave under her. Now here, I think you have the example of that which is genuine repentance and that which is not genuine repentance. A great many people think repentance means shedding tears. Well, they lifted up their voice and wept again. Orpah could shed as many tears as Ruth did. Probably her handkerchief was damper. I think it was. But notice what happened. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. She's quite emotional. But Ruth clave unto her. Now, this is the difference between that which is false repentance and that which is genuine repentance. Now, Repentance is not shedding tears. The word means to change your mind. Metanoia means a change of mind. It may involve tears as a byproduct, but weeping is not the salvation at all or not turning to God. A great many people are very emotional, but doesn't mean anything. They can shed tears, but it doesn't mean they've really repented. My dad used to tell about a steamboat on the Mississippi River in the early days. It had a little bitty boiler, had a great big whistle. And when it was going upstream, when it'd blow the whistle, it'd start drifting downstream because it couldn't blow the whistle and go at the same time. Now, a lot of people today, they have a big whistle. They can really weep. They can make a noise. But they don't have much power. And it doesn't mean a thing. Now, Orpah, she wept. And she kissed her mother-in-law, but it didn't mean anything. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. I have a friend, he's an evangelist. He loves to get people to cry. He thinks if they weep, that that's it. That's real repentance. He likes to get them down front weeping. Well, may I say to you that I kid him about it. I said, how many tears do you have to shed before you really are saved? Now, he says to me, he says, McGee, he says, don't be absurd. I said, I'm not being absurd. You're being absurd. You say you've got to shed tears. Now, I think that we ought to know how many you should shed. If a dozen tears are required in order to really be saved, then... My friend, when you've shed 11 tears, you better squeeze out that 12th one or you won't make it. Oh, he said, that's absurd. I said, sure, it's absurd, but who's been absurd? You say you've got to shed tears. Now, repentance means a new direction. It means to turn around, go in the opposite direction. And I believe that today all the repentance that's required is in faith, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul told the Philippian jailer. And then Paul could write to the Thessalonians and say, How ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. Now, Paul came and preached Christ. And these people were going to temples of idolatry. They turned to Christ. Now, turning to Christ is faith. Turning from the idols is repentance. And somebody says, which comes first and which is more important? You can argue that all you want to, but I can't turn the front of my hand without turning the back of my hand. 
And when you turn to Christ, friends, you've turned from something. And if you haven't turned from something, you didn't turn to him. And the turning from is the repentance. So that what we have here is this girl, Orpah, she kissed her mother-in-law, and she walks off of the page of Scripture back into the silence of the centuries. We never hear of her again. We assume that she went back to her people and to her gods and that she married among her own people. We never hear of her again. But Ruth clave unto a mother-in-law. Now, notice what this involved. She said, Behold, thy sister-in-law's gone back unto her people and unto her gods. You see, she went back to idolatry. Her repentance was no good at all. It was a marriage of convenience. She liked the boy, and she married him. But why in the world did she do it? Now, we're going to find out Ruth had another motive in view. And now, this is the thing that Naomi, Mary Sunshine, says to Ruth, Return thou after thy sister-in-law. You go back with her. And listen to Ruth now. This is real repentance. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. Now, she makes this decision. There are seven points in this decision. They're very important. I use in a double ring ceremony, I've always used for the woman part of these statements. And I think it's lovely. Notice this. Number one, for whither thou goest, I will go. That's the decision she made. She says, where you go, Naomi, I'm going with you. And number two, where thou lodgest, I will lodge. I'm just not using you as a convenience to get back in that land. I'm going to stick with you. And if it means poverty, I'll bear the poverty. And three, thy people shall be my people. You say I'll be ostracized. But I've turned to that land, and your people will be my people, whether they accept me or not. And then the fourth thing, and thy God, my God. Now I can answer a question which I couldn't answer for last time. Why would these two girls, why did Orpah, the athletic girl, marry a fellow that's puny and unhealthy? And why did Ruth, the lovely person that she did, now I can answer her, she married him because when that family moved in the neighborhood in the land of Moab, she was in dark idolatry, and she was in the depths of paganism. And she met this family and found out they knew the living and true God, And through them she turned to God. That softened her heart, and she married the boy when he proposed, you see. And so it's thy God, my God. She made a decision for God, and she's not going back on it. Notice verse 17, where thou diest, will I die. That's her fifth decision she made. And that's very important. That meant that the hope that these people had, we saw that in Genesis, that Jacob wanted to be buried in that land. Joseph wanted his bones taken up in that land. And why? Because the future for these people will be a resurrection in that land someday for the kingdom of heaven that will be established here on this earth. And that's Ruth's hope, by the way. She says, where thou diest will I die. And she says, and there will I be buried. That's the sixth. She says, I want to be buried in that land. 
She had a hope of the resurrection. She didn't have that in idolatry. And then she says, The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. That's the seven. What a wonderful decision that she's made. And Naomi knows Ruth by this time, and she knows when she makes up her mind, she's going through with it. So what happens, verse 18, when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So they two went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them, and they said, Is this Naomi? Is this Mary Sunshine? When she returned, see, she went out prosperous. She had a husband on one arm and two boys. They were sickly, but they were her boys, and she loved them. Now she comes back. Her husband is dead. Her two boys are gone. And all she has is now one little foreign girl with her. That's all. And her poverty is obvious. Now, notice Naomi. And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi. Call me Mara. That means bitterness. Or let me change that. Call me not Mary Sunshine. Call me Gloomy Gus. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Now, had God dealt bitterly with her? No, no. What had happened was, she's part of the prodigal family, and she just got her whipping in the far country. The family really got a whipping in the far country. And it wasn't God that dealt bitterly. It was because of disobedience. She doesn't blame herself at all. Then verse 21 I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Now, friends, I'm not an expert in mathematics, but I do know this, that there is a wide divergence between full and empty. I went out full. She had everything. She comes back empty with nothing. Lost everything in the far country. And then she says, Why call ye me Mary's sunshine? seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. So Naomi, so Mary Sunshine returned. I'm delighted the Spirit of God didn't accept her new name. She's not going to be Mara because wonderful things are in store for her. So Naomi, Mary Sunshine, not gloomy Gus. So Mary Sunshine returned, and Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Now, before somebody writes me a letter to tell me I'm mispronouncing the word Moabitess, I will say that I do know that the correct pronunciation is Moabitess, But I don't like that pronunciation. And when I don't like it, I change it my way. And I hope you'll accept it. I think the Moabitess sounds much better. And so we'll go along with that, if you don't mind. But the important thing is, here's this little foreign girl from the land of Moab, rejected, if you please, an outsider. And the Mosaic laws shut her out. And she doesn't think she has a chance 
But wonderful things are in store for Mary Sunshine and Ruth, the woman from Moab, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Now, friends, that's a good time to come to Bethlehem. You see, the famine is over, and now they've got a wonderful crop, the barley harvest, and then they will have the wheat harvest. Now we come to chapter 2, and chapter 2, geographically in our division, is in the fields of Boaz. In the fields of Boaz. Now, we're going to get an insight, actually, into the poverty of these women, and it, I think, will be quite evident. And we're going to see in this little book four strange laws. We've been over them, but you have to see these things in operation before they impress themselves upon us. And so we find here now that when they return, I'm reading now in chapter 2, verse 1, "...and Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz." Now, he's a kinsman, and that word is goel. And we're going to see that later on. But the important thing to note now is that Boaz here is a kinsman. In the Hebrew law, a kinsman redeemer. Now, he's called here a mighty man of wealth. You can translate that mighty man of the law. We'll find out he knew the Mosaic law. And you can translate it a mighty man of war. I think he was away when Ruth and Naomi returned. He was away on one of those numerous wars they were having during the time of the judges. Now, will you notice, And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. Now, friends, that means they were pretty poor for her to go glean. And she's appealing to the Mosaic law. Because over in the 19th chapter of Leviticus, the ninth verse, listen to this, "...and when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest, and thou shalt not glean thy vineyard." Neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I'm the Lord your God. Ruth is a stranger and poor. And Naomi is poor. And now she's going out to glean on the basis of the Mosaic law. That law again is repeated over in the 23rd chapter, verse 22. When ye reap the harvest of your land... Thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now, God required this of his people. They were to be generous to the poor and to the stranger. Now, this was God's method of taking care of the poor. He didn't put them on relief. This is God's poverty program. And he didn't have them line up and take charity. They were taken care of, but they had to go out into the field and work. They had to go out and glean. 
And it's estimated that in that day, anywhere from 20 to 40% of the grain was left in the field. They had a crude method. It is cut by hand and reap by hand. And it's not like they do today. A man told me that up in Kansas that McCormick has a new reaper and that it not only cuts the grain, it thrashes the grain, it puts it in a sack, and it's got a big arm on the end of that big combine, and it'll reach down. If a grain falls off, picks it up and put it in the sack. You get it all today, but you didn't get it all back there, you see. So that the poor could come in and follow the reapers, and they could do pretty well. Now, this is what's going to happen. And Ruth the Moabitess, she said, let me go glean. Verse 3 now of chapter 2 of Ruth. She went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Now, hap here is a word of chance. We get from this old Elizabethan word, we get the word perhaps. In fact, happiness comes from the same stem. Happiness depends on what happens. And the word happens comes from. It's a word of chance. And it was her hap. She just went out of Bethlehem, walked down the road of Bethlehem, looked in this field and that field, hesitated to go here and hesitated to go there, and finally went in the fields of Boaz. And while she's going down, I'm sure that somebody's going to say, especially some of these super pious folk, oh, you must have the leading of the Lord. And certainly there must have been a green light down there. Well, there wasn't any. And certainly the Lord must have put an arrow down there pointing into the field of Boaz. No, there wasn't. Well, then surely an angel spoke out of heaven and told Ruth, go into the field of Boaz, and there wasn't. It was by chance, as far as she was concerned. She didn't know what field to go in. God hadn't revealed it to her. She had prayed about this. You know, she's come to know the living and true God, and she has a real testimony we'll find out in Bethlehem in a few moments. And this girl, when she went out into that road of Bethlehem, she didn't know where to go in. And she'd had no dream the night before that told her to go into the field. And actually, the angels of heaven, they've climbed to the battlement of heaven, and they're looking over, holding their breath. Friends, because if she doesn't go in the right field, you just well tell the shepherds not to come down to Bethlehem, stay with their flocks. Jesus won't be born in Bethlehem, and send word to the wise men, don't come, because Jesus won't be born in Bethlehem. Well, somebody says, for a thing that important, I think that God would be on the job there giving her a road map and showing it. No, no, that's not the way he did it, friends. She prayed about it, and God used the circumstances to lead them. Now, I want to say this. We have today a lot of folk that say that you must have clear leading for every step that you make. I disagree with you. A great many people say, well, I've heard testimonies of people of how the Lord led them and showed them. And I know a man that is always talking about the Lord has just showed him. And I've often wondered how he did it. But nevertheless, he says, the Lord has just showed me. The Lord has led me. And I think the Lord leads him to certain restaurants to eat. I think he leads him to go down this street instead of the next street. 
May I say to you that that discourages a great many, especially new Christians today, that don't get that kind of leading. And I know I'm speaking to a lot of you. Don't worry about that, because I think that we have a lot of saints that are just a little touched in the head, friends. They really didn't have a vision. They really didn't have a dream. They didn't hear an angel. They didn't see a message in the sky. That's not the way God leads today. He leads people in a very hard-headed manner, and that's through his word. And if you're willing to be led, and you'll step out. I think God will lead you, but you better make sure God's leading you, friends, before you begin to talk about this matter today. Now, this man that I referred to has made the greatest failure of life that any man that I know of could make, and yet he says the Lord led him. Well, I don't think the Lord leads like that. I think the Lord leads like he did in the matter of Ruth. And I think if you'd been along there that day and said to her, Ruth, you better be careful what field you go in. Well, she said, I am being careful. Well, then, why did you pick the field of Boaz? Well, she said, I picked it because I looked across the road on the other side, and there's nobody gleaning there. But in this field, there were great many gleaning, and I took it for granted he must be a very generous man, or I wouldn't have gone in the field. And you and I, as you know, fundamentalists today, we would say, now, you sure you didn't have the leading of the Lord? And she'd say, yes, I think I had the leading of the Lord, but I didn't see a vision. I didn't have a dream. Her hap was to go into the field. You see, that's the way God led, and that's the way God wants to lead you and me today, is keep us close to him. He's not going to hand you a road map. You know why? Because you'd put your nose in the road map and follow it. He wants you to follow him. He says, I'll guide them with my eye. I'll lead them. But you have to be pretty close to him to be led, my friend. And you just can't run and grab it at the last minute when you get in trouble. This is something that I think is done over the years. Now, will you notice she's gone into this field. And notice what happens. Verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. See, he wasn't even in the field when Ruth entered. She didn't know him, didn't even know whose field it was. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Isn't that lovely? This is capital. Capital says, The Lord be with you. And labor says, The Lord bless thee. Why, it sounds like one of the labor leaders speaking to the president of General Motors, does it not? May I say, they don't greet each other like this today. I understand quite a bit of swearing goes on on both sides and a great deal of cursing. But you see, they were crude way back in these days. They weren't civilized like we are today. But isn't this lovely? Boaz says, the Lord be with you. He's speaking to his laborers, those that work for him. And they answered him, the Lord bless thee. This is good capital labor relations, by the way. Management and labor apparently were getting along in that day. They weren't civilized like we are, of course. Now, will you notice verse 5? Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? Now, he came into his field later on. And there were people gleaning. There were his laborers. He didn't know these people gleaning. They were the poor people, strangers. So he goes to his laborers. And he speaks to them. He says, the Lord be with you. 
And they say, the Lord bless you. What a greeting. And then he looks over this crowd that are gleaning in his field. And he noticed, I guess, that day there were quite a few of them were there. And then all of a sudden he sees her. <laughs> it's Ruth. He sees her. And what happens? Well, our translation says, whose damsel is this? May I say to you, friends, that that's very stilted Elizabethan English. That's really not what he said. Now, I've had one or two Hebrew professors that faint when I give this translation. But I want to say this is closer to it than the translation we got. Here is what he said. My friend, <laughs> that was a Hebrew wolf call, if you want to call it that. You know what's happened? Whose damsel is this? Oh, he says, who is she? <laughs> Why have I met her before? And he was, I think, the most acceptable bachelor in Bethlehem. All the mothers had given tea to invited him, and he just hadn't taken the bait. Now, here is a girl that comes in his field, a Moabitish girl. He doesn't know who she is. There she is. And this is love at first sight. Now, somebody's going to say to me, Pastor McGee, do you believe in love at first sight? I sure do. <laughs> I proposed to my wife the second date that we ever had. I took her out to a little park by the Santa Fe track and the highway from Fort Worth to Cleburne, Texas. And I drove in there on my second date, and I proposed to her. And there was a lovely Texas moon that night. I thought that was it. And friends, you know the reason I didn't propose to her the first night? I just didn't want her to think I was in too big a hurry. I waited, you see. And that was the next night. And I believe in love at first sight, but don't get any wrong ideas. We waited a year before we got married for the very simple reason we wanted to make sure that it was real. And it was. And we've been married a long time now. And she's still as sweet as she was when I married her as a young girl. May I say to you, friends, that this is love at first sight. And you're going to see this man's really in love with this girl. Now, will you notice? And the serpent that was set over the reapers answered and said, Why, it's the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. Now, you may ask the question, why hadn't he met her before? Well, the reason that he hadn't met her before is, I think he was away on one of those innumerable wars that took place during the times of the judges. He is a mighty man of war. He's a mighty man of wealth. He's a mighty man of the law. And so he is, I think, the most prominent man in Bethlehem at this time. And actually, he was the most acceptable bachelor there. But he's now fallen in love, friends. And now will you notice it? Now this is the servant. Apparently, the straw boss that he had, and that's pretty good to call him a straw boss because they're reaping grain, and there's a lot of straw there. So this straw boss, he says to this man, because I think he felt like that maybe that Boaz would not approve of him letting her come in and glean. And so he makes it very clear. He says, and she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, hearest thou not my daughter? Notice this now. 
He says, "...go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens." Now, notice what this man Boaz does. Imagine him, owner of a field, and I'm not sure that they wanted the field filled with poor people getting all the grain that was left, because if they didn't, they could come back and get it. But he says now, he says to her, I want you to glean in this field, and don't you go anywhere else to glean. Now, is he interested, or is he interested? Will you notice? Then let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have not I charged the young man that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels, and drink of that which the young man have drawn. Now, Boaz puts his mantle of protection about her. And he says, you'll be fully protected in this field. You and I today cannot realize the insults that she is a Moabitish woman received in that day. She's an outcast. She's outside. And she comes in now, and they insult her. And Boaz puts his mantle of protection around her. says, you come in this field, you'll be protected. No one will touch you. She would have been insulted, and in many different ways. Now, notice what she does. Then she fell on her face. This is verse 10, chapter 2 of Ruth. Then she fell on her face, and bowed herself to the ground, and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldst take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? Now, when I wrote my book on Ruth, I took the position, although I did not go into it in the book of Ruth at all, or in my writing, but I felt that she was being a coquette. In other words, she was playing it pretty smart here. She was being very coy about the whole business when she said this, that, "'Why have I found grace in thine eyes?' But very frankly, this was a sincere question on her part, and she had reason to ask it. You see, Naomi had schooled her and prepared her for the very worst. She said, "'When you go back among my people, none of them can take notice of you. You are a Moabite, and they'll just not pay any attention to you, and you will be an outcast, and it means you'll be a widow, and you'll be poor the rest of your life.'" Well, Ruth had already accepted that. She believed that. And she is amazed that she goes into a field, and for the first time that she's there, the owner of the field, the most acceptable bachelor in Bethlehem, comes out, and he falls in love with her madly at sight, and he begins immediately to want to take care of her and to show an interest in her. And she's overwhelmed by this, and her question is, "'Why have I found grace in thine eyes?' Now, friends, I can answer her question. All I have to do is say, Ruth, you go home and look in the mirror. You'll see why you found grace in his eyes. You're lovely. You're beautiful. And you have a marvelous character. And he's already heard about you. And he knows what a fine person you are. That's the reason you found grace in his eyes. He's fallen in love with you. Now, friend. I can answer Ruth's question, but I can't answer my question. I don't know whether I can answer yours or not. Why have I found grace 
in his eyes. Now, don't you go and tell me to look in the mirror, because I've already done so. And there's nothing there, friends, that would merit the grace of God. May I say to you that it's when we were ungodly, it's when we were running away from God, when we were in rebellion against God, it was when we were sinners, it was when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. And he did it. Why? He didn't find any explanation in us. He loved us. He loved us. He saw our need. He saw how unworthy we were. And so we found grace in his eyes because he loved us. And he gave his son to die. And Christ loved us and died for us on the cross. That's why we found grace in his eyes, my friend. Why have I found grace in thine eyes? Now notice, listen to Boaz now, verse 11. Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. Now Boaz had heard about her. He hadn't met her. And I have a notion that a great many had told him, Oh, Boy, you ought to see that girl that came back with Naomi. Is she good-looking? And he thought, my, he'd heard what a fine person she was, that she had left the land in her nativity, and that she had identified herself with the God of Israel. And he just couldn't believe it, that she's that wonderful. And I guess he'd been given a line before, and he was in no hurry to look her up. But she came by chance into his field. And he sees her, and he falls in love with her. And listen to him now in verse 12. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Isn't that lovely? The Lord recompense you, because you've come to trust the Lord God of Israel. You're under his wings. Oh, what a beautiful, wonderful picture that is. And she said... Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for that thou hast comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. And believe me, she was different. (laughs) That's the reason he'd seen them all just look alike. I don't know why all the girls want to look just alike in order to try to attract the fellas. I made this in a class of about... 300, and about 200 of them were women in the class. And so they came into class the next day, all of them dressed outlandishly because they wanted to be different. Well, I tell you, I didn't see there that the way they did it is the proper way. But this girl is different. And how wonderful it was. And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime, come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar, And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed and left. Let me call this to your attention. We think that was a crude day. They didn't move like we do today. Well, I think they did pretty well. He meets her about 10 o'clock in the morning. I have a notion he had to stay in Bethlehem that morning and go to the bank of Bethlehem and get his payroll, and he came out to the field a little late, saw this girl, 
about 10 o'clock in the morning, and he has lunch with her the same day. My friend, I would say that's moving pretty fast, even for this day. And it's moving very fast for that day. He's fallen in love with her. <laughs> We're going to watch him move from now on. Oh, isn't it wonderful today that you and I have a Savior that loves us? And friends, we ought to love him. We love him because he first loved us. Now, I wouldn't say this was a gourmet lunch by any means, not in our measurement today, but it was the common food of that day. It was certainly nourishing. Boaz was a man of means, and he's eating out there with his workmen. And here is this girl now, and he's seeing that she gets plenty to eat, too. He has lunch with her. And I think probably she had her best meal there that day she'd had in a long time. Verse 15, When she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is he in love with her, or is he in love with her? Imagine a man that owns the field, saying that, now, I want you to let her even glean among the sheaves. If she comes up right where you are thrashing and picks up one of your sheaves, don't you say a word to her, you let her have it. And not only that, in verse 16 of chapter 2 of Ruth, why, I read this, "...and let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them that she may glean them and rebuke her not. Now, handfuls of purpose. I have right here in my bookshelf, in my study, I have a set of books called Handfuls of Purpose by James Smith, a Baptist who wrote a very fine series. He got his title from this expression of Boaz, Handfuls of Purpose. What is he saying? Well, he's saying to the workmen, his servants, he said, now, you watch this girl when she's gleaning back of you, and if she gets back of you, you look around, and if nobody is looking, you drop a sheath. And when you drop a sheath, well, you just move on as if nothing happened. And when she comes up, she'll say, Yoo-hoo, you dropped a sheath. And you say, Oh, I don't think I dropped that one. That's yours. And you make sure that she gets it. And did you know that was according to the Mosaic Law? That's the way that God took care of his people in that day, the poor people, listen to this. Deuteronomy twenty-four nineteen, When thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. And believe me, Boaz is going to get a real blessing from the Lord here, the way that he's treating this girl, while he now has his workmen drop a sheaf on purpose, not to forget it, but to do it purposely, and then to tell her it is hers. Well, that's what happened during that afternoon. She really received special attention. And what happened? Verse 17, So she gleaned in the field until even, and beat out that that she had gleaned. It was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. 
And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today? Now her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned more than a normal poor person, and especially a woman, out in the field would glean. She brought in a great deal more, and she wonders now about it. She knows that somebody has taken notice of Ruth, and the interesting thing is she never thought that would happen at all, and here it has happened. Where hast thou gleaned today, and where wroughtest thou? Now notice, blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. In other words, what she's saying is, someone really took notice of you, and someone was certainly interested in you. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought, and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. Well, very candidly, the name meant nothing to Ruth. She didn't know who he was, hadn't any understanding of who the man was in the community. All she knew was that he had been particularly nice to her. I do not think at this time she sensed that this man has fallen in love with her. All she has to go by is what her mother-in-law told her, that no one could become interested in her. And she had accepted perpetual widowhood, perpetual poverty. And all of a sudden, here is someone that's taken notice of her. And she's bound to ask the question, Why have I found grace in thine eyes? Well, she still does not realize the full significance of what has happened. Now notice, And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. Now, to you and me today, just to say the man's related to us doesn't say a thing. It only means that, well, he could take just a little note of you. But back in that day, there was what is known as the law of the kinsman redeemer, or the law of the goel. And it's a little bit different than the way we do things in our day. And you'll find out that this law of the kinsman redeemer operated in several different ways. We're going to see now the second unusual law. And we will be taking up the third unusual law, I expect, next time. But now will you notice here, and this law is in two different parts. Let me read, first of all, in Leviticus, the 25th chapter, the 23rd through the 28th verses. Will you listen to this? The land shall not be sold forever. God said that he gave that land to these people. They were never to sell it forever. It would be impossible for an Israelite to give a quit claim deed to their property. You just couldn't do it. They couldn't sell it out of the family. The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. 
for ye are strangers and sojourners with me. Now, God says that the land actually is mine. I'm giving it to you. But the conditions that he put down were these, and in all the land of your possession, ye shall grant a redemption for the land. Now, you see, God not only gave the land of Israel, as we've seen, to the nation Israel, and he put up sideboards around it, and he then gave to each tribe a particular portion in that land. And in each tribe, he gave to each family a particular spot that was theirs. That was to remain in the family, and it could never go out of that family as long as they were in the land. Then the way that God kept it in the family, suppose a man got poor. Oh, it could be for different reasons. Suppose he had two or three bad years, drought, and he had to mortgage his property. Or suppose that he started drinking and became a heavy drinker, and he lost his property. Well, what would be? Well, God so arranged it that every jubilee, that's every 50 years, all mortgages were canceled. All slaves went free and the property returned back to the original owner so that you could never get more than a 50-year lease. And if you were in five years of the year Jubilee, you'd be pretty foolish to take a mortgage because automatically it would go back to the owner regardless of whether the mortgage was paid or not. Now, suppose though it's 45 years to the year of Jubilee. That's a long time. A man can get old in that time. Now, what was the law? God says, there is the law of the land, and I will grant a redemption for the land. The law of the redemption for the land. How did it work? Listen to this. If thy brother be waxen poor, and hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. Now, suppose it's 45 years, and he has a brother, a rich brother. And he writes him, and he says, Look, I've lost our patrimony. I've lost the place, and I've mortgaged it, and I've lost it, and I need so much. He writes his brother. And here's this poor man, now working like a hired hand, looks down the road, and he sees his brother coming, and he's taking his checkbook out ready to write the check to pay off the mortgage. That would be a wonderful thing, would it not? Now, a kinsman redeemer is one who is a kinsman who's in a position to redeem property. Now, not only property, but suppose there were several years of famine. Suppose the man had had, we'd say, bad luck in many other ways, poor crops. And he not only lost the property, but he'd sold himself into slavery. And if a sojourner or stranger wax rich by thee, and thy brother that dwelleth by him wax poor, and sell himself unto the stranger or sojourner by thee, or to the stock of the stranger's family, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brethren may redeem him. Now, that's in Leviticus 25, verse 47. 
Now, this is not the redemption of property, but the redemption of a person. He sold himself in slavery, and again he looks down the road and sees that rich uncle coming, or a brother, with his checkbook out, and he's writing a check. My, what a wonderful thing it would be. He would pay the price, and that would be called a kinsman redeemer, the one who did that. Now, did you know you and I have a kinsman redeemer? We were sold under sin, slaves of sin, we are told. Christ paid the price for our redemption. And did you know something else? You and I live in a world today that's under the curse of sin. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth until now. Why, you know, God knew all about pollution long before this sophisticated generation knew anything about it. You and I live in a world that has the curse on it. When are we going to get rid of pollution? Well, we have a kinsman redeemer. He's already paid the price. And one of these days he's coming and he's going to lift the curse. Then the desert will blossom as the rose. You and I have a kinsman redeemer today. A redeemer who will deliver our person and someday deliver this earth from the curse of sin that is upon it. Now, this man, Boaz, Naomi's saying, He's our kinsman redeemer. That is one of them. Now, the question always been, what relation was he to Naomi? That is, actually, to Naomi's husband. Well, I think he was a nephew. In other words, I think Ruth's first husband was his cousin. Because later on, we're going to find out there's a kinsman closer than he is, obviously a brother of Naomi's husband. And I am of the opinion that he being closer must have occupied that position. Now, this man, Boaz, stands in that unique position, and Naomi tells Ruth all about it. Now, notice what happens. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said, He said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young man until they have ended all my harvest. That is, stay by my reapers until the harvest is over and to continue gleaning in that field. And Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. Now, since he's made this overture to you, and he's urged you to come to glean in his field, then the thing for you to do, Ruth, is to go and stay in his field. And added to that, he just happens to be a kinsman redeemer. Naomi had lost the property. It was gone. She had no property to come to. And apparently a long ways till the year of Jubilee. And so here these two poverty-stricken widows, and they need somebody to redeem the property. They are not sold under slavery. But also there's another very interesting section of this law, which we're going to see next time. But now let's notice how this chapter ends. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Now, this is the picture that's before us. Barley harvest and wheat harvest in that land, we're told, takes probably three to six weeks. It would depend, of course, upon the crop, upon the type of year they'd had. But a minimum of three weeks, a maximum of six weeks. So what do you have here? 
every afternoon you see coming into Bethlehem. Not wise men, no, friends, not wise men. And not shepherds, no, that's what we think about. No, there's coming into Bethlehem, Boaz and Ruth, walking into town. And believe me, was the little town of Bethlehem buzzing. They were talking. And you know what they were saying? They were saying, our most acceptable bachelor, he sure has been caught. Oh, boy, is he caught. It was obvious that he was madly in love with Ruth. Now, Ruth wasn't doing or saying a thing, tell the truth. She was very calm about all of this. And actually, she did not apparently know the full significance of what was taking place. But notice, every afternoon when they'd come walking in, Naomi would look out the window, and she'd see them coming, and they'd stand at the gate and talk. And what happened? Ruth is not making any move at all, and she should, as we're going to see a very strange law next time. But there's that couple standing out there. And poor Boaz looks like a dying calf in a thunderstorm. He's in love, but his arms are strapped. Did you know he actually could not propose to her? She occupies a most unique position. And then they tell me that the Bible is a man's book. May I say to you, it's a woman's book. And I sometimes think the man doesn't always come off as he should on equal position. God believed in women's rights also. She really had some rights, but Ruth was not exercising them. And Naomi, she's a regular matchmaker. She's going to take things in her own hands. Now today, friends, we come to the third chapter of the book of Ruth. And in the third chapter, we have another geographical position. In chapter one, it was in the land of Moab. And chapter 2 was in the fields of Boaz. Now, chapter 3 is on the threshing floor of Boaz. Verse 1, now, chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? Now, actually, Ruth was in a unique position. According to the Mosaic law, she was the one to let this man know that she wanted him to act as her kinsman redeemer, and she would have to tell him. Now, that goes back to a law that I mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy, and I'm going to go over it again here today because it's on the basis of that law now that Naomi is asking Ruth to move. And we need to understand this law. We also need to understand the condition of the threshing floor in that day, of just what the culture of that day permitted, the custom of the day. And to understand both, we'll understand that what took place actually was a very lovely thing. And that is what I want you to note here. Now, first of all, the law is back in Deuteronomy 25, beginning with verse 5. Now, listen to this, and this to me is the strangest law that God ever gave. And it's a good law, but the point is, it's to me quite humorous. And I think it must have produced some unusual situations. It does in this case. Listen to this. If brethren dwell together and one of them die... 
and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her, take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. Now, that would mean the other phase of the kinsman redeemer. Actually, these are four strange laws that we've had here. We had the law about the way God took care of those in poverty. Then we saw that the land could be redeemed. Then we saw that a person could be redeemed by a kinsman redeemer. And now we see that a widow could be redeemed by a near relative of her husband. Now, she's in the unique position of when her husband dies of reaching out and tapping on the shoulder a brother or an uncle or a cousin, a near of kin, and to claim him as her kinsman redeemer. That was the law. Strange law, don't you think? In the common society of the day, it worked out some unusual situations. Now, before I gave an instance of it, and I think I'll repeat it today with maybe a few refinements, but here is a family living up in the Ephraim country, let's say. And this man that lives up there, he has four or five very fine boys that are growing up. And one day, one of the boys, probably the middle one, he gets down the lantern late in the afternoon, He trims the wick, puts oil in it, and when it gets dark, he starts down the road, having lighted the lantern, and he's whistling. My, he's really whistling. And the other brothers look at each other, and they wonder where he's going. He hasn't said anything about it. And so they just pass it by, not too much, but along about 11 o'clock, they hear him coming down the road whistling, and they see the lantern approaching. He comes in, puts out the lantern, Goes to bed, doesn't say a word. Next morning, the brothers wait for an explanation. They don't get it, and they wonder. But they're going to pass it by because they think maybe it's just one night affair. But the next night, he gets down the lantern again, and he has a repeat performance. Goes down the road, about 11 o'clock, he comes back. He does that for three or four. And you can be sure of one thing. They've had a war council in that family. And they've been doing a little investigating. So after about a week of that, why, the boys are waiting for him when he gets home. And he comes in whistling. Only I think this night he was singing. And he blows out the lantern and starts to get in bed. And the boys, they light up the rest of the lights. And they say, brother, we want to talk with you. And he said, fine. What do you want to talk about? Well, he said, we'd like to talk about you. Well, he says, that's a good subject. What do you want us to talk about? He said, we've been wondering where you've been going the past few nights. He said, I've been going down the road. Well, he said, that's certainly evident because we've seen you. But said, just where have you been going? Oh, he said, just been going down the road. They said, it's true that a new family's moved in the neighborhood down at the old place down there. He said, yes. said, I understand that. New family's moved in. And they said, you didn't happen to go there, did you? Well, he said, I could have. Well, they said, that's not what we asked, but did you go there? Well, he said, I did. He said, they're new neighbors, and I wanted to adopt the good neighbor policy, and I dropped by and welcomed. Well, they said, looks like you've been by to 
welcome them every night. Well, he said, want them to feel at home. And they said, there is a daughter in that family. He said, well, I think there is. Well, they said, could you by any chance have gone to see her? And they look at him intently, and he begins to fidget a little. He said, I could have. And they said, we want to ask you now specifically, are you interested in that girl? He said, yes, to tell the truth, I'm interested in her. Well, they said, how interested? Well, he said, I proposed to her tonight, and she accepted. And they said, wait a minute, you should have talked to us about that. Because if something happens to you, one of us would have to marry her. She could claim one of us as a kinsman redeemer. And we've all looked her over. And tell the truth, none of us want to marry her. So we think probably you ought to have a physical before you get married. We want to make sure you're in good health because none of us want to be claimed as a kinsman redeemer. And so the family becomes profoundly interested in this girl down the road, and you can see why. Now let me read the rest of the law, and you'll see what I mean. Verse 6, And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother, which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, my husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Now, you want to talk about women's rights? Look at this for a moment. This was God's way of protecting widows and their children. When a man died, he might leave a farm. He might leave cattle and sheep and grain in the field. And what can this widow do? Well, she can just reach out and tap on the shoulder any one of the boys and say, look, you are it, and I choose you. And she has to move. She is the one to move. She can claim who she wants. Now, suppose she does claim one of them, and he doesn't want to act. Doesn't he have any protection? Yes, she can hail him right into court. He can say that he didn't want to marry the girl. Then what happens? Notice this, then the elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him, and if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders, loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face, and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. Now, that's pretty severe. When he took off his shoe and spit in his face, that, my friend, meant the man was disgraced, and no man in that day wanted that to happen. So the family is very much interested in who the younger brother or the older brother married, because any one of the brothers might become involved or he might be disgraced. Therefore, this woman Ruth is a widow. Her husband is dead, and the property has been lost. She needs a kinsman redeemer. She needs somebody to redeem her. And there's a man there that's in love with her, and he's the kinsman redeemer. Now, what are you going to do? Well, Naomi says, we're going to let him know. You've got to claim him, Ruth. Here you come in every day. And there he stands, waiting for you to make some sort of a move. And you don't make a move. Fact of the matter is, she's wearing widow's weeds. 
mourning for Naomi's son. And they were a little repulsive by this time. And yet, the man's in love. And this widow's not moving at all. Ruth is not moving. So Naomi says, I'll take it in my own hands. Nice. She says, this is what I want you to do. Now she says, verse 2 of chapter 3 of Ruth, And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Now, he tells her, you're to go down to the threshing floor and claim him. The threshing floor, as we saw in the instance of Gideon, was up on top of the hill. It was the most conspicuous spot in the community. That's where they thrashed grain. And the reason it was up on top was so that the wind would blow across from any direction. You wouldn't put it down in the valley because they would pitch up the grain and the chaff would be blown away and the good grain would fall down on the threshing floor. During this period of the threshing or of the winnowing out the grain, why, they would begin in the afternoon. All of the families that were involved in a certain field, the servants, the owner, and his family, they'd all move out there, and they would camp around the threshing floor. Now, there was no Holiday Inn in that day. There was no Howard Johnson Motel for them to stay in. So they just camped around the threshing floor. And in the afternoon, the wind would come up. If you've ever been on the desert in California, sometimes on the desert, I've been down there of a morning, and oh, it's so lovely and nice, but late afternoon, oh, that wind comes up, and sometimes it blows a little dust, a little sand, and then by sundown or after sundown or sometime during the night, it'll stop. Well, it does that in that land. So the wind would come up in the afternoon. And when it did, the men would begin to work furiously, winnowing out the grain. Then the wind sometimes at sunset or sometimes by midnight, the wind would stop blowing. When it did, of course, they would stop there winnowing. And then they would have a big feast. It was a religious feast. You see, everything for these people was connected with religion, was connected with God. And many of those wonderful nature psalms are psalms that would fit out under around the threshing floor. Let me just suggest one or two. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork day unto day under his speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. You see, they're out there underneath the canopy of a blue sky, even blue at night. And up there are the stars and the moon. This was the scene, my friend. That was the threshing floor of that day. And it was a time that they had eating and drinking and thanking God for a glorious heart, thanking him for his goodness and grace. And you know, we don't do enough of that today. So what does she say to Ruth? She says, Ruth, this is what I want you to do. He winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, put on thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. 
Now, what she's asking her to do is not wrong. The families are there. It's a religious service. And do you think Naomi would suggest to Ruth anything that would have been questionable? With their background strict as they were in that day? No, my friend. It's your and my evil mind that would read anything into this. This was a lovely thing. Ruth is to not bring him into court. You don't have to do that, man. He's in love. And Naomi knows the ways of men. She's had a husband and two sons. She knows pretty much how they think. And she says, you don't have to take him into court. Just go down at the threshing floor and tell him you want him as your kinsman redeemer. Now, there are four things here. And this, I think, is appropriate day for me to mention these four things that she was to do. First of all, wash thyself therefore. That's the first one. And did you know, friends, that these are the four steps that brings us to Jesus Christ? These are the four things that are all important. And the first one of these, wash thyself. Now, when you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the sin question has to be settled. And Paul put it like this to a young preacher. It's not by works of righteousness which we've done. Because, my friend, our righteousness is filthy rags in his sight. But according to his mercy, he saved us. And by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When you are born again, friend, you are washed. Have you ever noticed when a baby is born naturally? First thing they do is wash a little fella. And I tell you, when you become a child of God, God's going to cleanse you and wash you and put on the swaddling clothes of the righteousness of Christ that enables you to stand in his presence. That's the first step in our salvation. The second thing is anoint thee. Now, I'm not going to go into a great deal of detail. I may come back to this later. Anoint thee is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And John twice, the great apostle of love, he says, we have an anointing. And if you and I are to understand the Word of God, our eyes must be anointed by the Spirit of God that we might see. For I have not seen nor ear heard Neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. But John says in First John 2:27, "But the anointing which ye received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is true and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him." And so Naomi says to her, wash thyself, and then anoint thee. What she says is, get out that bottle of perfume that my son gave you a long time ago, and you haven't been using it. Get it out and use a good supply of it. And friends, I can let you in on something that you don't get out of commentators. I can tell you the name of that perfume. The name of it is Midnight in Moab. Say, that's a perfume. Let me tell you, anoint thee. And then third, put thy raiment upon thee. In other words, she says to her, she says, get rid of those widow's weeds. Put on that little party dress that you and my son used to wear when you'd go out of an evening social. It says, if this man, Boaz, has fallen in love with you, Wearing those old widow's weeds, wait till he sees you dressed up in this lovely gown that you have. 
put thy raiment upon thee. And friends, you and I have no righteousness at all, but he has a robe of righteousness which he puts down on those that he saves. And that robe of righteousness, Paul speaks in Romans of it, that it comes down to all mankind, but it comes upon those that believe. That's the way that you receive it. And Paul spoke of it. He says, be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And that's the raiment you and I must be clothed with. We're to stand in his presence, and it comes by faith when we trust Christ. And then the fourth thing she was to do, get thee down to the floor. And she's to get down to the floor and let the man know. And friends, have you ever told Christ that you trust him? Have you? I have met so many folk that had never done that, never taken that step. I spoke to a... Christian Endeavor Convention, Fresno, several years ago. And as I was leaving, it was a hot night. It's the day before they had air conditioning there. And I had my coat on my shoulder and in my shirt sleeves. And I met a little delegation of fellows. They brought a boy. And they said, we brought him here tonight. And we thought he'd accept Christ. He didn't. Would you talk to him? And I began to question him. Do you believe this, that? He believed the story of Noah. He believed about Jonah. And what do you do? I presented the plan of salvation, and there we all stood. Finally, I set out a desperation. I said, young man, would you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? And he said, I sure would. Those fellows had been arguing with him, and that's what I started doing. May I say to you, he wanted to accept Christ. My friend, today, have you ever told the Lord Jesus that you trust him, that you love him, that you want to serve him, if you haven't, why don't you do it right now? Now, what Naomi is saying to Ruth, she's instructing her now the procedure she's to follow. First, she was to wash herself. And these are steps that you and I take when we come to Christ. First of all, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God must cleanse us. That's one of the values of the Word of God. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. It has a sanctifying power, the Word of God does today. That's the reason we're trying to give the Word of God out. It touches the hearts and lives of the unsaved, and they see they need cleansing. Christ said to his own, you're clean through the Word which I have spoken unto you. And that was the first step. She was to anoint herself, anoint thee. Get out that bottle of perfume my son gave you before he died and use it lavishly because this is a very important time. And then put thy raiment upon thee and then get thee down to the floor. Let him know the trouble of it is, and I appreciate Naomi very much. She's a very straightforward woman. She says, I've been watching this man. He's brought you home every day and his hands are strapped to his side. He can't move, and you are not making any move at all. Now, I want you to get down there and let him know. Let him know you claim him as your kinsman redeemer, for you are the one to do that. Now, friends, Christ died for you. We can talk about the seven last words of Christ from the cross, but he needs a word from you. 
And the word from you is a word of, do you trust him? And if you do, why don't you tell him that you do? If you love him, why don't you tell him that you love him? If you want to serve him, why don't you tell him that you want to serve him? How far removed so many today are from him. And he's as close as hands and feet and breathing today. But we need to let him know. I told about the young man. I told it so hurriedly last time up in Fresno, California, where I'd spoken to a Christian Endeavor convention, and I'd gone in where those that had accepted Christ had gone and had a word with them. And then there was another room where those had gone who dedicated their lives, and I'd had a word with them. When I came out of the auditorium, it was in the days before it was air-conditioned and was a hot night in summer, took off my coat and I started walking across that big auditorium, and I saw a little delegation of young men coming toward me. When they got there, one of the young men that was a spokesman, he said, would I talk to them for a few minutes? And of course I would. And they said, we brought this fellow, and they called him by name, Tonight, we've been arguing with him. We've been trying to get him to accept Christ, and he just doesn't make a decision. We thought maybe you would talk with him. And I began to put to him, you know, I said, you believe the Bible? He said, yes. I said, you mean to tell me you believe that story about Noah and a flood? Oh, yes, he said, I do. I said, well, what about the story of Jonah and a fish? He said he believed that. Well, I was a little put back because generally you can get a good argument with a college student on one of those. And so I said, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you? Or did you believe he died on the cross? said, yes. I said, do you think he died for you? He said, yes. Well, now my course that I had in personal evangelism never went any farther than that. I stopped and I wondered what to say next. The fellow stood there. Finally, one of them broke the silence by saying, that's what we've been trying to tell him, that Jesus died for him. And I just finally blurted out, and I said, young man, will you accept Christ as your Savior? And he said, yes. That's what I've been wanting to do. We just got down on our knees, and that young man prayed right through to the Lord that he'd save him. He told him. <laughs> And that's what he'd been wanting to do all along, and he just didn't know what to do. I'm of the opinion we got many people in our churches today that have really never told him that they trust him, that they love him, that they want to serve him. Now, this is the thing that Naomi said, get thee down to the floor. Get down there and let him know. And she says, but make not thyself known unto the man till he have done eating and drinking. In other words... Wait till the work day is over. You don't interrupt his work. And then when they're having this wonderful feast of thanksgiving to God for an abundant harvest, don't interrupt that. And she says, But it shall be when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. Now, the man in that day would lie like spokes around the threshing floor to protect the grain from any marauder during the night or from anyone else, for that matter, any thief that wanted to come in. And they were lying like that, which meant their head was up toward the grain, but their feet were just out like spokes all the way around. Now, what Naomi says, you go, put your feet up toward his feet. 
but you pull his cloak down over you that he has there. He'll be warm, you see, from the work of the evening, and he won't want it, but during the night he'll get cold, as it does in desert country. And so this is what happened. And he said, And uncover his feet and lay thee down, he'll tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. Now, Naomi's not advising her to do something wrong, as some folks seem to think. Naomi happens to be her mother-in-law. This girl was married to her son who died. And you can be sure one thing, she's just not even about to do a thing like that. And now this girl, Ruth, I think she does this reluctantly. She said, oh, I don't want to let him know. I don't, maybe he wouldn't want to marry me. She's reluctant to take this step. I think it was a strange law for a woman from Moab to find out that she's to go and to make the overture. But she says, all that you'd command, that you say, unto me, I'll do it. And she went down under the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. Now I'm reading verse 7. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn, and she came softly, uncovered his feet, and laid her down. You see, down at the foot where these men were lying all around the grain, why, they had put down a cloak, because during the night they're going to pull it up. And so what happened was this. It came to pass at midnight. The man was afraid. What happened was he reached down for his cloak, and we're told here he turned himself. Behold, a woman lay at his feet. You see, just reached down to get that cloak. It wasn't handy where he had put it. And so he felt somebody else's feet that were poked down there toward his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I'm Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid for thou art a near kinsman. Now, what she's saying here is this. You are my kinsman redeemer. I claim you as my kinsman redeemer. And friends, I think this is one of the loveliest things that you have in the Word of God. This is romance. And let me tell you, this is real romance. Here is this very fine, outstanding man of war, man of law, man of wealth, and here is this lovely, beautiful woman of Moab, a helpless, poverty-stricken, and all of that. And he's fallen in love with her. But he can't say anything. She has to claim a kinsman redeemer. She could have brought him into court, brought him before the elders. But Naomi arranged it like this, as you go down there and let him know. And so she said to him, you're my kinsman redeemer. I claim you. And you can well understand that's going to make him happy because listen to him. Verse 10 now of chapter 3 of the little book of Ruth. He says, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. Now listen to him. He says, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter. Sounds like an old-fashioned shouting Methodist, does he not? But I tell you, this hasn't made him unhappy at all. This is what he's been waiting to hear, and it's come in a most unexpected way. It's quite interesting in this little book, how Ruth appears on the scene. 
he never dreamed that there was such a vision of loveliness in this world. And of all places, he walks out in his field one day, and there are a bunch of poor people gleaning in his field, and he sees her. And it's love at first sight. He said, who in the world is she? Why, they said, you ought to know who she is. She's that woman that came from Moab with Naomi. Her name is Ruth. Oh, he said, I've heard of her. The others had told him about her. And he could not believe that a person, that so many good things had been said about her, that she could be as lovely as that. And he fell madly in love with her. Now, he's wondering what she's going to do. He's been busy working at the grain all day. I have a notion that her vision passed before his eyes several times that afternoon and evening while he's working. And he lies down. He's weary from the labor and and his servants there. And during the night, he reaches down, and there's a woman's feet up against his feet, poked toward his. And he was looking for his cloak. And he said, who in the world is this? Well, she said, I'm your handmaiden. I'm claiming you as my kinsman redeemer of all unexpected things. And I imagine that he waked up the whole top of the hill when he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning. This is the thing that I'm sure the gossips in Bethlehem had said. When Naomi came back with Ruth, I'm sure gossips always do things like this. They must have said, well, now, she's a beautiful girl, isn't she? Well, you just watch her. She'll start chasing after every man in Bethlehem. Not a man will be saved. Well, the interesting thing was, Naomi had told her that you're ostracized. You're out. No one would be interested in you. And Ruth has accepted that. And she hasn't made a move in any direction. And she's passed by the boys because she has felt that it would be perfectly meaningless because they couldn't be interested in her. But here is a man now that says he loves her. And he wants to be the kinsman redeemer. And he says to her, it's been obvious in this town that you haven't been out chasing the boy. You haven't been chasing around looking for a husband. That's been obvious. And that added to the fact that she's claiming him now as a kinsman redeemer. It means that she wouldn't have done it if she hadn't meant business by it. Now listen to him. He says, And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. And this is one time that I must say that Boaz, to me, sounds as if he's not only being very sincere, but he's not making a great sacrifice at all. He says, I'll do all that you require. You bet he will. He's delighted to do it. He says, now listen to this. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Now, this is remarkable. When that girl came back to Bethlehem, friends, as a Moabitish woman, that little town had its eye on her. They were watching her every move. And before long, people had to admit, why, this woman has given up everything in the land of Moab, and she's made a stand for God. She's taken a stand for God. She trusts the Lord God of Israel, the living and true God. And they began to commend her. And they began to say what a wonderful person that she was. Now, that's unusual for a little town. I was born in a little town. 
I lived in a little town. I had my pastorate in a little town at first. And I rather agree with the statement. Somebody said, God made the country, man made the city, but the devil made the little town. I hate to say that, but I happen to know that a little town can just ruin a person. I talked to a girl. She lived on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. Her problem was she didn't know who her father was. And she had a wonderful mother, by the way. And she was very attractive, had personality, and the most attractive young man of the little town. He fell in love with her, wanted to marry her. But I tell you, his parents came to me one night. My, they didn't want that to take place. I tried to reason with him. I said, why, he couldn't have made a better choice than that. And they got him out of town. They got him away some way. That girl came to me brokenhearted. She said, what shall I do? I said, leave this place. Go up to a city and start over again. Several years after that, I was in that city in a meeting. And there she was, sitting with a fine-looking young man. She told me, said, that's my husband. <laughs> they got married. He loved her. May I say to you that the little town of Bethlehem was gossiping, but it was good gossip. And there's not much good gossip going around. They said, why, this is a marvelous person. Now, listen to Boaz. Now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. He gladly acknowledges it. Howbeit, there is a kinsman nearer than I. How'd he know that? He'd been doing a little investigating. He was ready for this. Tarry this night, it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well... When Boaz thought that over, he wondered what he could do. And there was nothing for him to do. All he could say was, well, I tell you, his heart went all the way down into his socks at this time. In fact, right down in this well that he's talking about. Well, then he says, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth, lie down until the morning. She lay at his feet until the morning. She rose up before one could know another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Actually, he doesn't want this other kinsman to know. And he said, Bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. When she held it, he measured six measures of barley, laid it on her. She went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? Now, I have to smile when I read some of the commentators try to explain this. They say, well, the reason that Naomi said, who art thou, is it was dark and she didn't know her. My friend, she would know her daughter-in-law when she came home, I can assure you, because she was expecting her. When she said here, who art thou, my daughter, it wasn't because she didn't know her. What she's really saying is this, I sent you to do this. You were reluctant to go. Now, who art thou, my daughter? Are you Mrs. Boaz or not? Was I right or was I wrong? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, Go not empty to thy mother-in-law. Then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be at rest until he have finished the thing this day. Now what she says to this girl is this. She says, Ruth, you claimed him as your kinsman redeemer. This is all you can do. You can sit and rest. And you can rest because he will do all the work for you. 
He will become your kinsman redeemer. Now let's watch Boaz as he begins to move. I'm reading now verse 1 of chapter 4 of the book of Ruth. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Hold such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Now, there's several things there that are important for us to note. To begin with, Boaz went up to the gate. He sat down there. Why? Well, the gate in Bethlehem or any town of that day was the most active place. In fact, that's where the action was. And anyone that lived inside that city that had fields outside the walled city sooner or later would either come in or go out that gate. And Boaz knew it was the harvest season. And he knew this other kinsman who had fields also, that he'd be coming in or going out sometime during the day. So Boaz just planted himself right there by the gate to wait. Then another reason, the gate was the place where the court met in that day. You know, our method today, or at least it was in early days, to have a square, and in the middle of the square to put a courthouse, and then a little town was built around it. And practically every town in the Midwest was built like that. But back there, the courthouse was the gate. That's where the action took place. Now, Boaz sits down, and he waits for him. And he knew he'd be coming in or going out, and that one came by. And we're told here, host such a one. Now, doesn't Boaz know his name? He apparently is Boaz's uncle. Didn't he know him by name? Sure he knew him by name. Well, why isn't his name given? Well, I think for a very definite reason. This man will see... He was unable to redeem. And also, I think I'll be able to give him a name, but hold such a one. Why did Boaz say that, though? Well, I think Boaz was sitting there probably reading the morning paper, reading the Bethlehem bugle. And he was reading it, and lo and behold, he looked up, and there was this fellow who was going out the gate to go to his field, and he was out probably a hundred yards, and before he could even think of his name, jumps up and says, Oh, such a one. And the man turns around, and he turned aside and sat down. Because boy says, Sit down here. And I think he was saying to himself, Well, I wonder what in the world has come over Boaz that during our harvest season, we're all out winnowing grain, and here he seems to be so busy, and something else has come up. And we're told, verse 2, And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And believe me, they wonder, Well, what in the world has come over Boaz? What is it that is so urgent that he wants to bring it before us at this time? And so they sit down. And court is in session, friends. Because those ten elders now represent the court. They will make a decision. Now, Boaz brings a matter before the other kinsmen. Notice verse 3. He said unto the kinsmen, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And this is the matter now that's going to be discussed. 
It'll have to do with the property, first of all, of Elimelech. And he was the husband of Naomi. He's dead now. They've lost the property. And these two men, either one can act as a kinsman redeemer. Now he says, Boaz is speaking, and I thought to advertise these saying, buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there's none to redeem it beside thee, and I'm after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, Boaz presents to him the property first. And I think that was of the first consideration. Now, neither one of these men up to this moment had apparently moved in behalf of Naomi. I don't think she had called upon them, probably. Had a bit of pride, didn't want to call upon them. And now when she's found out Boaz is in love with Ruth, why, she urges her to begin to move, you see, and claim him. Now, Boaz is interested in Ruth. But he's willing to redeem the property. But he asked this other kinsman, Will you redeem? You are ahead of me. You see, he was closer of kin to Elimelech. And so, apparently it hadn't been called his attention. He said, Sure, I'll redeem. And again, Boaz's heart went right down in his socks. No question about that. Because of the fact that he would hope this man would say, No, I can't redeem at all. Now, Boaz, though, he's prepared for this. And so now he brings forth another point that actually becomes a fly in the ointment that presents a real objection to this other kinsman. Notice, then said Boaz, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess. And I think he bore down on that word Moabitess the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And Boaz said, well, I forgot to tell you that there's a little foreign girl that has this property very complicated now. If you're going to redeem that property, you're going to have to marry her. And according to the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 23.3, it says, A Moabite or an Ammonite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Now, if you're going to redeem the property, you're going to have to also redeem this little girl, and the law keeps her out. Now, do you want to go ahead and redeem? And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this kinsman said, well, when you put it like that, The law, therefore, would keep her out, and I cannot get my estate in that complicated position. Because if I did marry her, and I think this man had grown children, why, it would jeopardize their inheritance, bringing in this foreign girl like this. And he said that I cannot redeem. Now, I think this kinsman represents the law. Actually, the law cannot redeem us. The law is incapable of redeeming any of us for what the law cannot do. That's the thing that Paul makes very, very clear. And he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we've believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified 
by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The law cannot save us. You see, if the law saved us, it would have to lower its standards. It would have to come down to meet the low level, and it cannot. We'd have to come up to that standard, and we cannot come up to it. Nothing wrong with the law, but there's a great deal wrong with us. And this kinsman, he says, why well, I can't. I jeopardize my estate. I think his grown children would be involved. And I do not think they would have approved of a marriage like this at all. Now, that's exactly, of course, what this man Boaz wants him to say. And he's presented the problem to him for that reason. Now, notice verse 6, "...and the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance." Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe, gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. I'm glad that they didn't spit in their face anymore, because that's not very nice. And in a case like this, all that was necessary was to take off the shoe. So that thing that happened was that this kinsman just lost his shoes, that's all. As we hear today of sometimes of a man in a business deal losing his shirt, well, this kinsman lost his shoes. May I say I have a name for him now. Oh, such a one is barefoot. He's barefoot. Now, the law is barefoot. The law can't save you at all. And it's only the gospel that puts shoes on our feet. You remember when Paul talks about the armor of God, he says, "...and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace." The law can never put shoes on your feet. There is a negro spiritual that I'm afraid the white folk know nothing about how to sing it. And I never like to hear a white quartet sing. Negro spirituals, because they don't know how to sing them to begin with. But one of them is, when I get to heaven, I'm going to put on my shoes and I'm going to walk all over God's heaven. Now, friends, when you've got six pairs of shoes at home in the closet, you can't sing that. But if you had been way back in antebellum days in my Southland, and you one day was asked by your owner to hitch up the buggy and drive him into the town, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, or maybe Gadsden, Alabama, someplace like that, way across Georgia, drive him into town, and you drive up to the hitching post, and he says, wait for me here, I have to go in the bank, and you just hitch up the horse there to the hitching rail, and you look in the store window, and you see a pair of yellow button shoes. Now, the prettiest things you've ever seen. And you don't have a pair of shoes like that, and you know you never will have a pair of shoes like that in this life. But you're Christian, and you have a hope. And so you can sing now, when I get to heaven, I'm going to put on my shoes and walk all over God's heaven. Friends, may I say to you, a great many of the whites ought to find out today that the law won't put any shoes on your feet. And a great many people expecting to walk into heaven on their own. 
You'll never walk into heaven on your own. You're barefooted. You're lost without a Redeemer. Therefore, the law can't save you. And so now, this fellow barefoot, he has to back out because he's unable to save. Now, what is going to take place? Therefore, the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. Boaz said unto the elders and to all the people, Ye witnesses this day, that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, all that was Kilion's, and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife. He's redeemed her, you see, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Your witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem, and let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. She was his wife. When he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And this one, by the way, the little one was named Obed. That's what they called him. And Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. And that little one was the grandfather of David. And Ruth was the great-grandmother of David. And she's also in the line that led to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is an illustration of the kinsman redeemer. It's an illustration of the love side of our redemption. There are several things we see now about a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer, he must be a near kinsman. Well, that's quite obvious, I think, to all of us. But the Lord Jesus Christ, you see, he never got the name Jesus until he was born down here. He could never save his people from their sins till he came down here. And the writer to the Hebrews says, "...for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. And then in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, we're told, And when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. He is our kinsman redeemer. He knows you today and he knows me today because he came down here a human being and he knows us. A kinsman must be willing to redeem. Well, certainly Boaz was willing. He wanted to redeem. And you and I have a kinsman redeemer 
who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And then the third thing is, he must be able to redeem. He must be able to redeem. Now, I have a notion that maybe Naomi had some poor relatives. Most of us do. In fact, I'm poor kin folks myself. But I imagine they came over to see her when she got back to Bethlehem. They brought a handkerchief as big as a bed sheet, and they dampened it up. In fact, they had it ringing wet when they left. They just sympathized with her and all that. But they weren't able to help her. They said, you know, we've lost our property too. You know, you and I must have a kinsman redeemer who is able to redeem. He must be one free to redeem us. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth, and he could say, Which of you convinceth me of sin? The prince of this world cometh, and he findeth nothing in me. Well, he was not contaminated with sin. When he was born holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, And he was that sacrifice that when he was put on that cross, he was made sin for us who knew no sin. And he alone was able to pay the price. No other man, you can't redeem me. I can't redeem you. We can't even redeem ourselves. We're all sinners. It's just like throwing a lifeline from the top deck to the lower deck when a ship is going down. And the old ship of humanity and civilization is going down. And there are a lot of nice boys up on the top deck throwing us lifelines today. Well, sociology, religion, and all that sort of thing. But I tell you, the top deck's going down also. They had to be one come down from heaven. And he told Nathaniel, he says, you're going to see heaven open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of God. He is that ladder, not thrown from humanity, but came out of heaven. And the voice said, This is my beloved Son, hear him. He is our kinsman redeemer. Oh, friends, what a Savior we have today. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.